also a the first day in two weeks that uh, there's no Women's World Cup, so I'm uh, I got a little breather today. Yeah, I'm on Film Week right after this. I'm yeah. gonna jet right from this podcast over to Film Week and uh, sit in front of a different microphone. And I see that you are editing, and it's looking good. Oh, it, it definitely looks good. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you you do these things, and, and you get real close to them. So I'm I'm really lucky that I can send this yeah. stuff to you guys. You know, yeah. the guys, you know, Mark including you. Yeah, and uh, and you guys are like my sounding board. Yeah, and you're very clean, and you're very honest. You have to be able to take that. So you filmmakers out there, look, you got to be able to take clean, honest, direct criticism from the folks who know what they're talking about. And you guys have been that for me. Thank yeah. you very much. Absolutely. Excellent now, it's a, it's a process. Oh man! And, yeah, I mean, you know, you just when you, you guys, what you guys are, what uh, editing now? You're in post. Yeah, on the on the short, so it's in post. That's funny because uh, I, I I just had to do a I had to do a run for my wife before coming here. So yeah. I'm a, I'm a runner. <laughs> It's I'm a runner running. on top of everything else. 30, 30 years. Yeah. After film well, it was on. The, it was on the way here. I had to yeah. do a thing. Just you know, it's it's funny, and not to get into any 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 details, but it's really it's fascinating when you uh, when you're shooting digital. There there's a, there are a whole new. Don't think that shooting digital erases the problems of shooting on film. Mm. It doesn't. It brings a whole new set of problems. Mm. The run I had to make this morning is specific to shooting on digital, and it's it's fine. It'll all be fine, but if if they had shot on film, probably would have taken longer to shoot, but this problem wouldn't exist. Mm. You one know? of those, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those. Yeah, yeah. One, 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 uh, one thing takes the place of another thing. Yeah. What's funny is that all the things that remain the same, particularly on the sound yeah. side of the process, yeah. how much of it just remains the same. Absolutely. Uh, of what you have to do. And, yeah. and um, you know, uh, it's you know, it's a lot of fun, but it's a ridiculous amount of work. Uh, and, uh, you know, you do not it go into it it's, lightly. It's a process. Yeah. It is a process. I think I think when you sit there and you watch him, and it's funny, too, I because this is this is the difference that, that I'm not going to name any names, but there are certain people that we're on we're on a film week with, who are strictly writers. They don't come from a filmmaking background, mm. so they don't look at the process and and see all of the difficulty in the film. Mm-hmm. And 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 I always I'm always aware of that. I always think, what did you really just sort of like pff, dismiss this movie? Mm. I mean, I get it; it's not perfect, but they worked yeah. their asses off on this like that is a really impressive effort i gotta give them an a for effort yeah and particularly and you and i are the same because we're both you know we're yeah we we, we studied making films yeah. uh and, and and you know it's a sort of a thing that we do now we've always brought that to our sort of film criticism process yeah. I, I i'm like you i i can look at a movie and i think to myself i know what it took to do say that scene yeah. Yeah. i know what it took to do that scene bravo yeah exactly bravo this whole movie is not working yeah, uh, but bravo, and I'm going to give you credit for that, and uh, you know, so yeah. you know what would have been a, uh, a because, B minus is now a B plus because we sit there for a 90 minutes, 120 minutes, 150 minutes, whatever it is, 180 minutes in the case of Avengers, and it's it's like a few hours, and then you, the people who made it spent months and years years yeah, yeah. and and you you kind of owe them something yeah. you owe them some respect for that yeah and Just acknowledgement the of the things there i get it that you're uh ordinary audience member you know uh, out there in tacoma and st louis or wherever uh may not be thinking about all that although True. to be honest with you uh wade i'm not sure that's not that's true anymore i, I think that the film audience has become much 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 more sophisticated than i think it was they are when we were young um, um, I hope um, so. Younger, I think. I think that they are thinking about. You know what? This is some. This is some good filmmaking. I think that they think about it and they care about it. 
All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna launch right into it and uh, and try to cover some uh, some good stuff. I, the anime keeps coming fast and furious. Uh, huge market out there for anime, obviously. So we're gonna try to do right by all the people who love their anime. And uh, even though, again, I am not you know a dyed in the wool anime person. Got my favorites: Star Blazers and Space mm. Cruiser Yamato, and you know Gotcha Man. And there are things that I grew up on, and yeah. you know. Speed Racer, and a lot of things that I like now, too. Astro, I'm an Astro Boy boy. There you go. Uh, but you know what? I do appreciate it, and I, and, and uh, I have gone through uh, a, enough of a lot of this that I can make certain recommendations. So um, here's the thing. Kind of memo. This is from the Made in Japan collection through Section 13. And uh, kind of memo is, um, again, it is, a, it, is, uh, it is rooted in the whole Japanese youth culture thing. It skews younger. But it's actually kind of – it's more interesting than I expected it to be. It's about a, um, a 13-year-old girl who um, loses her grandmother and now has to sort of grow up faster and fend for herself. And it's a, it's, it is a coming-of-age thing, but it's got um, – it's it's got a, it's got an interesting uh, an interesting kind of sociological vibe to it more so than I would have expected for something like this. It really uh, it really touches a nerve that I think is more than just rooted in Japanese school culture and youth culture. And I you know it's I, I think they may have kind of uh, exceeded themselves unexpectedly on this. It's it's very funny, but it's also occasionally very very touching. Kana Memo, the complete collection from Made in Japan. Uh, and uh, skewing a little bit more tweaked is uh, he is my master from Sente. Uh, that sh- alone, just that title, should uh, should should kind of make you perk up. Uh, this is not this does not skew young. This is a little bit twisted. I'm not sure how much of this I'm supposed to laugh at and take a satire or not. The tone kind of eludes me. But let's just say that it is. Um, it's about two runaway sisters who become maids. And they wear those little French maid outfits, and their 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 boss. They have to call him master, and it gets really kind of uh, fetish oriented. And I was very uncomfortable watching uh, what I watched of this. It is, um, it really is very fetishistic. It's mm. not. It's not. It's. Not my speed. It's, it's, it's they go there sometimes. It, it, the the do? Japanese do go what there. Do they go there a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't. I, I don't request hentai for that reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. Not going to go there. Uh, Royal Space Force: The Wings of Hanamis. Uh, I'm sure I've mispronounced that. Also from Made in Japan. I believe we have talked about this previously. This um, this is really this was quite a big deal when it originally came out. It is really one of the more ambitious um, classic animes, and uh, it is uh, it's one of the earlier of the mecha um, uh, one of the, of the mecha epics, and it uh, it's really really great. I I think it's terrific. I think the the animation the artwork is uh, it, it's a little bit raw, but it's intentionally raw. And um, it, but it really it established a certain look and a certain style uh, for uh, for a lot of uh, present day mecca. It's not um, it's more rooted in reality. It's about the um, the the beginnings of um, uh, it's about a, kind of a rudimentary space flight program. It is it's it's like a fictionalized look at what a an alternate space flight program would be in its in its early evolutionary stages, and um, that way it's able to sort of be rooted in what we have, but also put it into a different world and into a different science fiction environment. 
And it really is, it's very, very interesting. Uh, it's worth checking out if you've never seen it. Royal Space Force, the wings of uh, Hanamis, Hanames, however you're supposed to pronounce yeah. it. I'm doing my best. Uh, Basquash, with an exclamation point. It's one of those sports things. A lot of anime uh, is rooted in sports stuff. This is from the people who did Macross, which I like a lot, and Bodacious Space Pirates, which I don't like too much. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, robot basketball in the future. That's, I, I, what do you want? Basquash. It's robots playing basketball with people in the future, and, you know, there it is. Um, I kind of, um, it's... Not great. It, it, it's more for a very, very specific audience, and I'm not sure that's me. Shout and G-Kids have, uh, have a great alliance going, and they're releasing a lot of great stuff. So all the really great stuff that G-Kids picks up, at least on the anime end, is being released from, uh, from Shout. And they're, they're grabbing a lot of really, really top-tier stuff. One of them is uh, the Modest Heroes from the Ponok Short Films Theater. This is from the people that did uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower. And uh, it's a collection of uh, just very, very pastoral stories, short stories. Uh, so it's an, it's an anthology. It's an anime anthology. And they're all really, really good. They're all um, intriguing. They all have certain, they all have great characters. And they're, it's a little Twilight zone -y. It's like an anime Twilight Zone kind of. And uh, it's really, really good. There's, uh, there's one about a, uh, a kid and his mom and, and, and his allergy that's really, really kind of bizarre and fun all at the same time. It's really very clever. Uh, Hozuki's Cool-Headedness. Where do they get these titles? <laughs> Seriously, Hozuki's Cool-Headedness. I'm sure there's a translation somewhere that that makes sense to somebody. Uh, so anyway, this is a, a supernatural thing. The, uh, the, the souls of the dead uh, are, are being judged in hell. And Hozuki runs the whole operation and has a little horn on his head. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's unusual. Uh, it's, this is like a really tweaked Japanese mythological version of Dante's Inferno with a lot of really cool animation and some really, really weird creatures and some very, very misplaced humor. Uh, it is, uh, this is the second season. I don't, I don't. Don't recall ever having seen anything in the first season, though it's possible I could have, but it, this doesn't ring a bell. And uh, I, you know what? It's really about being weird, and <laughs> um, and I guess on that account, it uh, it works to some degree. Um, let's see here. We've got uh, Mikagura School Suite, the complete series. This is from the Essentials line. And uh, this is a high school story. It's more of that high school politics, but... Uh, you know, a, a guy who um, gets a crush on on the girl, at, and that you know, it has to do with what you know. Is he going to pick this? What what high school is he going to pick? And uh, it's all about kind of you know Japanese youth culture and in really mundane ways. Doesn't really work for me all that great. Uh, I got a thing called Sankaria, the complete series, also from the Essentials line. Um, this is about somebody who, uh, by the name of Furuya. And uh, he wants to, uh, he's kind of like a Dr. Frankenstein character. Um, he's trying to figure out how to make his cat live again. His cat died and he's trying to reanimate his cat and make a zombie cat. And um, there's, then there's a girl and I don't want to tell you what happens to the girl, but the, the whole thing about the girl and him trying to reanimate the cat 
winds up taking a very weird turn with the girl, and it's very, very disturbing. And uh, I'm not sure I'm quite on board with that either. Uh, Maria the Virgin Witch complete series. This is pretty cool. Um, this is kind of a nice myth, has a little bit of a, a pseudo-religious angle to it, brings the Archangel My- uh, Michael into it to um, clash with this uh, young witch by the name of Maria. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a little bit Lord of the Ringsy, but not too much so. It's kind of a, it's kind of a cool world that they create. Uh, Maria the Virgin Witch, that's the complete series. Sword of the Stranger. This is a movie. This is also part of the Essentials line. Um, and this is from the Bones studio, which is really, really super cool. So this is about a, um, a guy uh, battling Chinese assassins, which is always a thing. And, you know, the, in Chinese movies and in Japanese movies, they, they always make the other one the other. They, they still, they're still feuding. Um, but uh, it, it, pretty great animation here. Pretty great action. Pretty great animation. And uh, there's a, a nice, uh, really a nice kind of um, accessible vibe. It's not overly mythological. Uh, Dances with Dragons complete series is uh, is very very Lord of the Ringsy. Um, I, I'd almost say in some ways probably more Harry Pottery, mm. um, but you know it's uh, it's about basically about a couple of uh, of, of magical bounty hunters. If that makes sense. Um, a little hard to follow, but you know looks good. Uh, Golden Kamui season one uh, is a, a, a treasure map story. Uh, about a bunch of uh, about a bunch of escaped convicts who are all trying to find the uh, the same treasure and uh, trying to you know basically it's a mad 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 world with badass anime dudes instead of uh, mm. anybody funny. Uh, Black Clover we've talked about before season one part four that's out now if you want to keep following the the uh, Black Clover saga. Um, the uh, Absolute Duo complete series. Uh, this is also from the Essentials line. Um, not terribly interesting. This is about a uh, a, a school where um, like a like a supernatural. It's kind of Harry Pottery supernatural school with where you're where they learn special weaponry, but the weapons have a metaphysical connection to your your eternal soul. So uh, it, it it's. Not quite clear what the rules are here. Things just kind of happen for no re- no reason, and people have supremacy for no reason. Didn't quite follow the uh, the rules, but the the Harry Potter aspect to it, the school politics, is par for the course with Japanese anime. Uh, Barakamon complete series. The uh, also from the Essentials line. We've talked about this before. Uh, Barakamon is great. You you really want to check this out. This is a um, this is just wonderful uh, anime drama. The Ancient Magus's Bride Part Two. Uh, I believe we talked about part one uh, as well some months ago, so that's uh, that's out there. Dragon Ball Super Part Seven for the people that want. There's no reason to talk about Dragon Ball. That continues to go. Uh, just a few more here. We have Space Battleship Tiramisu. That's right. Soon to be followed by Space Battleship Pizza. <laughs> Where do you come up with Tiramisu? Yamato, come on. It, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. This is season one plus the OVAs. Um, it really, really does borrow a lot from Space uh, Cruiser Yamato, uh, Star Blazers, borrows a lot from it. Um, it. It looks good. It's much more up to date, but not as up to date as the new Yamato. So it kind of slots in there. I'm sure if you like the one, you'll probably like this one as well. I, I found it just a little bit too derivative and, um, you know... It's tiramisu. How do I take yeah. that seriously? Uh, Hakyu Hoshin Engi, the complete series, 
is uh, about a thing called the Hoshin Project, which is um, this, uh, it's this secret operation to um, uh, find X-Men type immortal people. And uh, you know, somewhere between like Men in Black and X-Men, like if Men in Black were chasing the X-Men, does Mm -hmm, that make sense? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what this is. So that's what this is, and then it has a whole then it has a whole weird uh, additional tangent to it that goes completely off the rails. But it's not bad for for that moment. Uh, and then uh, the last two, the Rolling Girls, complete season one. Uh, this is also part of the Essentials line, and uh, this is, I guess, kind of kind of cute. It's about superhero girls and their their various battles and intrigues, and uh, you know, it's got some. Got some interesting uh, angles to it, uh, as, you know, as far as anime feminism is concerned. And then, uh, lastly, uh, High School DxD Hero season four continues more of that stuff. That just I I didn't even didn't even really bother with this one. This is um, this is kind of getting tiresome. But the High School DxD thing has a following, and I do not begrudge you your following. <laughs> I might have I might have a few more to uh, to jump into later, but I'll I'll let you get going on some of this classic stuff. We got a, we got a lot of classic movies too. That it, just yeah, up. and I'm kind of bouncing around all over the stuff uh, a little bit. So um, as you know, uh, Shaft. Not long uh, about a week ago, the yeah. Shaft came out. Yep. Um, the the original Shaft, of, of course, what is it about 1970, 1971, something like that, uh, like that, and then seventy one, I think seventy one, yeah, uh, and then skip forward to uh, John Singleton's Shaft, which I think was about the year two thousand, maybe two thousand one or something like that, starring Samuel L. Jackson, uh, uh, and Richard Roundtree was walking around in that Shaft back then. Funny thing about that Shaft wasn't very good, and the only person whose career it actually helped was Jeffrey Wright. Who played that uh, little Puerto Rican true. Uh, gangster in that movie? Yeah. Christian Bale was meant to be the real sort of bad guy in that movie, but it you know just didn't sort of gel in that movie. But Jeffrey Wright came out of that movie looking pretty good, uh, and then they did this recent Shaft uh, again. Samuel L. Jackson, Richard Roundtree, still in the movie, <laughs> still in the movie playing the original Shaft, and then there are two or three other Shafts. I don't know what the hell's going on with all that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's grandson. There's too many, something. too many Shafts. <laughs> There's nothing yeah. going on in the movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, here the Warner Brother Archive Collection gives us the Shafts uh, that have been forgotten. Uh, so 1972, yeah. Shaft's Big Score. I love this movie, actually. Also directed I, by uh, Gordon Parks. I think this is a really underrated movie. Yeah. I, it, I think it fell into the – people just thought, oh, you know, back then people didn't respect sequels. And I think that I think honestly think this is a this is a in many respects um, it's not better than the original Shaft but it rivals it and it's more it's it's a little bit more straight to the point movie and yeah. it has less to do with quote unquote the man or anything like that Moses <laughs> Gunn in this movie uh, Shaft is it's a straight up revenge movie somebody kills his friend and he's going to go and find out who uh, who did it and take care of that business and he makes a few new friends you got Moses Gunn in the film uh, uh, which is really really great love love some love Moses, Moses Gunn whatever uh, happened to Moses Gunn you know I, I hope Moses is still, is still around, around but I'm not. Look that we, should, up. we should look him up. Joe Santos in the movie. You used to love seeing Joe Santos walking around Kojak yeah. and all those uh, yeah. detective shows back in the day. Oh. Julie Harris. Moses, Julius G- Harris Moses Gunn passed in 1993. Really? That yeah. long ago? That Moses. Well, well wow. love me Moses Gunn. He, didn't, he wasn't around. I mean, he he uh, he was born in 29. So that's um, 
Gosh, he's in, what is he in his sixties? He was in his sixties when he's passed. Yeah, yeah. Gee whiz, that's really sad. Neat. Anyway, so this is Shaft's big score, uh, a brand new caper, uh, Richard Roundtree uh, Round reprising his role as Shaft. Ernest Tidyman wrote the script for this too. Ernest oh, Tidyman no, wrote the that's book. Right. That's right. That's it was right. For and the he, um, for the original Shaft. Joe Santos passed two years ago. Oh, Three years Joe. ago. Three years well, ago. Three you know, Joe years hung ago. around for a while there. Yeah, that's way to go, Joe. Yeah. So that's nineteen seventy two, and the other forgotten Shaft, of course, is Shaft in Africa. Uh, which is a little silly, but which enjoyably is, silly. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of a nutty thing. I, I like the theme of it. Shaft goes to Africa to break up a um, uh, a slavery ring. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this, this uh, uh, shipping slaves off to Paris to work, to Paris to work yeah. in this gym. This is directed by John Gillerman, yeah. which is a little weird to me. Uh, uh, that's uh, partly why. Well, Gil- we should point out Gillerman was like the the original cheesy action director before yeah. the official cheesy action directors of the eighties really came of age. You oh know, yeah, King Kong and the Tower. King Inferno Kong, yeah, nineteen seventy nine yeah. one with Jessica Lange and all that kind of stuff. That yeah. was Gillerman. Yeah. Uh, the Max going all the way by George yeah. Papard and all yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So it's a little weird that John Gillerman's on this, but uh, uh, I love this tagline though: the brother and the motherland. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love it. That's Again, so Richard Roundtree uh, in the movie, uh, along with you know some really, really great, wonderful faces from back in the day, uh, uh, Vanetta McKee and all those sort of folks um, who hung around for a really long time. So a whole lot of shafts, new shafts, shafts still going. Who would have thought? 45 years of shafts, some six films. Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? Not me, not in a million years. Lady Scarface, uh, was a fairly wicked sort of uh, uh, gangster movie from the classic gangster uh, movie period. Kind of neat in that, you know, it's Lady Scarface. The movie is about uh, this cop uh, who's on the heels of this uh, ring uh, that pulls off this heist in Chicago and then uh, hightails it back to New York. He follows them to New York. He has some, some information uh, about the leader of, of, the, uh, of, of this gangster group. The one thing he knows is that this leader has a scar. He does not know that the leader is a woman, and that's what makes this wicked little gangster movie kind of interesting. Dennis O'Keefe plays the cop. Judith Anderson plays Slade. That's the only thing he knows. He knows that, her, that the name of the leader of that gang is Slade and that they have a scar. Uh, it's a really, really interesting, wicked little movie from that period, uh, which I imagine if you are uh, sort of into noir as we are, you would uh, thoroughly enjoy our Arca- RKO pictures from back in the day. Gorgeous black and white photography. Gorilla Man. I uh, love this also uh, from Warner Brothers. Neat John Loder and Ruth Ford film. It's um, uh, set during the war. Um, you have a commando, uh, so that kind of a gorilla. But in this case, that's not what it's really referring to. That's why it has an O in the title. And the reason why they call him the Gorilla Man is because he's known for being able to climb and, 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 and grapple and get over things. And so they call him Gorilla Man. They, they should have used the one with the U, but what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. Anyway, um, he gets, uh, he get, he gets uh, caught, and he goes to a sanitarium on the south coast of England. What he does not know is that this sanitarium is actually a nest of Nazi spies. They uh, extricate from him uh, information about what, he, yeah. about, about what he's supposed to do, but they send some troops out there uh, to uh, do some crimes to, uh, um, to uh, he, gets, he gets accused of doing these crimes, so he's not able to deliver his information to HQ, to command. It's a really sort of uh, you know, intense and, and stirring little, little movie I rather enjoyed. Um, uh, Gorilla Man, D. Ross Lederman directed that. I wish they would put a little bit in, 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 in the way, by way of special features on these Warner Brothers rele- releases. It would be neat if they, you know, a historian or something like that to sort of bring us up to, up to um, 
update on what happened behind the scenes of the film, stuff like that. From, from the Cohen Film Collection, I thoroughly enjoyed this Joan Micklin Silver film from 1977, Between the Lines. It was right after her, oh, her big that. film, Hester Street. And it, it really is a neat little movie. Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum in this movie, John Hurd in this movie, Lindsey Krauss, Jill Eikenberry, who would be on L.A. Law a few years later, Bruno Kirby. So all of these sort of wonderful actors uh, who were roaming around these sort of neat little independent films that were happening at that time. And there's sort of uh, women directors. You had Joan coming along. You had uh, Susan Seidelman coming along. Uh, you had you know a sort of interesting group of female writer-directors making these very interesting independent films set in the real world. This one is set at like a, um, a, a little newspaper, sort of like the, the Village Voice, or here we have the LA Weekly. Uh, and you have all these writers, uh, Jeff uh, uh, Goldblum is the new music writer and he uses all his uh, the ability to get tickets and whatnot to get dates. And you have John Hurd in the film, who's the news reporter, and, and Lindsay Goldblum, who's like the chief photographer. And you just roam around this newsroom and with these people, these are talky, talky, talky movies. Uh, with smart people having interesting conversations about the world they live in and about their relationships and, 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 and how they're getting along and what's going on. I love movies like this. You don't see a lot of movies like this anymore, although we have been talking about how there is something yeah. of a renaissance of, there the, is. of the independent film yeah. out there again, yeah. uh, which is sort of interesting. Anyway, Between the Lines, Joan Micklin Silver film, uh, out by Cohen Media uh, 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 Film Classics. Um, a little bit of information in terms of special features. You have an interview with the director, Joan Micklin Silver, the original trailer, and, uh, and a few other things. So, neat mo little movie from 1977. Gonna knock off All right, more of those? yeah. You know what? I got four more anime that I'm gonna I'm gonna put a plug in for. Um, the uh, the first one is is trust me, you're gonna want to kind of hang around for this. This is uh, Basilisk Part One, the Uka Ninja Scrolls. Now, this is based on a manga series. Um, it's if you're if you're into Ninja Scroll, the original Ninja mm -hmm. Ninja Scroll, and the and the world that that created, and everything related to it, which is very bloody but very intensely animated and very colorful and dark and rich and and very kind of rooted in in all of that Japanese feudal uh, mythology. Um, the you you will find a lot to appreciate here. If you're not, stick with it because there's actually more here than meets the eye. So the uh, this is based on a manga series that was uh, quite famous, like fifteen some odd years ago, and uh, uh, that was then that was that itself was based on a, an old novel, a Japanese novel from nineteen the nineteen fifties, and so they what they're the 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 anime really pays uh, honor to both of it, and it all takes place in the seventeenth century with these two feuding ninja clans. Uh, to decide which one of them will basically birth the next mm -hmm. Shogun. And it's very Shakespearean. That's what really makes this interesting. But you got to stick with it for a little bit. It, it takes probably about six or seven episodes before it all kind of sort of starts to gel and you really get with it. Otherwise, it can be very confusing and kind of hard to follow, and the, the animation is very, very aggressive. But it's really worth sticking with. Uh, that is Basilisk, the Uka Ninja Scrolls, part one. Stick with it. It really is. It's a it's a worthwhile investment. Uh, we got Chaos Dragon, um, the complete series, uh, and this is also from Funimation. These are all still Funimation, uh, and this is based on a role playing game that I've never played. Yeah, I played other role playing games, uh, but anyway, this is uh, Chaos Dragon, which uh, ran about four years ago, and um, this takes place in the far far distant future, and it's uh, about a you know a couple of countries that obviously don't exist right now that are uh, at war and you know trying to 
trying to become supreme. And it really does feel like a role-playing game elevated to anime. It's very nicely animated, very colorful, very uh, uh, engaging characters. Um, the, the The future mythology of it and what these things usually do is they push it far enough into the future that you can sort of pretend that it's like... You know, you can get away with anything at that so at that point. Magic and everything else is you know all yeah. perfectly real, but you can still be sort of ancient and medieval about it. Anyway, Chaos Dragon, part of the Essentials line. Uh, it's nice to look at if uh, if nothing else. Uh, Castle Town, uh, Castle Town Dandelion uh, is also very very entertaining and enjoyable. This is about the Sakurada family, who are. Um, I, I don't want to call them I, I, I wanna I, I hope that most Japanese families are not necessarily like this. They <laughs> well, you know, it's it's mm. very, very it's super it's super traditional and patriarchal in many, many respects and to a and to a point where it um well, they're 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 Japanese royalty. Um and there's a and there's there are superpowers involved here and um I, it, it's not worth giving a whole lot away, but the it's really it, it's it's a fascinating family. Uh, let's just put it like that. Uh, if I had a family like this, I'd be both terrified and elated. So that's Castletown Dandelion. Uh, a lot of entertaining surprises there. And then lastly uh, is Sky Wizards Academy, which again goes into kind of a Harry Potterish uh, direction, but it's got some really really fun characters in it. Um, this is based on a light novel series. And uh, this is about a bunch of uh, these these uh, insects that uh, have chased humanity away, all kind of Starship Trooper style. And the insects live in these big, giant, uh, skyborne cities. And uh, wizards are the ones who have to do these... Um, they attack the insects in these really, really elaborate, amazing... Um, Kind of aerial combat, like it's like dogfighting. It's like Star Wars and World War One dogfighting. Wow! Uh, but except they're sky wizards and they're fighting insects, and that's what it is. Um, and you got to learn how to do it. And the kids are really cool, and uh, everything everything about this is really cool. So it's a little bit of Harry Potter meets how to do this. Let's see, Harry Potter meets Star Wars meets <laughs> meets um, uh, Starship uh, Troopers. Yeah, I love it. Can we do that? I love Can it. Hey, frankly, if they All hadn't right. done it, I just, I just, ju- right. I just suggested Sky that we do it. Wizards Academy, the complete uh, series from Funimation. A few there more? Yeah, uh, let's, let's hit some some stuff there. Uh, um, uh, this is an uh, interesting uh, movie by a friend of ours, Rod Lurie, uh, 2007 film Resurre- Resurrecting Rod. the Champ, with Samuel L. Jackson and Josh Hartnett, kind of loosely based on uh, a, the true story of an LA Times article. Uh, there was a, there was a period there when you know anybody wrote an article in the LA Times it got made into a movie, um, uh, and this was one of them. Although it was a, it was an interesting thing. Samuel Jackson plays um, uh, a, a homeless man living on the street. Josh Hartnett, an up and coming reporter looking sports reporter looking for one of those great stories. He finds this guy that that used to be a uh, a championship boxer, and he he sort of you know learns about his life and uh, about his rise to fame and, and, and his ultimate fall to where he is now and he does in fact become noted uh, noted for that story but it only makes the old champ's boxer's life worse uh, so he has to figure out something there an, an interesting story well directed by rod i rather enjoyed it. special features include an audio commentary uh with the director our friend rod lurie uh and some behind the scenes footage and featurettes and and whatnot a neat uh underappreciated movie 
uh, Resurrecting the Champ uh, by Rod Lurie, Samuel Jackson there. Um, FM. I remember. I, I remember going to see this movie in 1978 when it I came out. I can't believe it's that old. <laughs> it was 19, this, and then I think a year later, TGI yeah. Friday. It was like yeah. a whole little run of these yeah. uh, movies that were all to one extent or another sort of sort of wacky. I can't believe this that that movie. It, it's as old as Star Wars almost. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, 1978. Uh, 41 years. So anyway, uh, this was a this is a movie about uh, directed by Johnny Alonzo. Who who is of course the cinematographer sure. and actor? John was in Chinatown and a, oh, that's a, right, a, yeah, yeah. a bunch of stuff. He would roam around his movies. Knocked out one or two as a director, including this one, um, which is about an FM radio station uh, that uh, rebels. All the DJs from this hip happening '70s style FM radio station uh, rebel when the station starts running more and more commercials, and uh, specifically because they start running. Now remember, the thing is, they start running army recruiting commercials in the movie, and that was the thing that set most of the sort of hip and happening DJs off. They didn't want to work on a radio station that was running army. Re- Today, none of this could possibly be even conceived as a notion uh, for a movie, but in 1978, we're only three years off of the end of the Vietnam War. So that would have been a very, very potent sort of uh, subject matter uh, uh, for a movie. Alex Karras in the film, the wonderful uh, Cleavon Little in the film, Martin Mole in the film, uh, 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 Norman Lloyd in the film. It just goes on and on and on. It's a really, really funny, silly movie from back from back in the day, um, um, uh, directed by John Alonzo. Uh, let's see. Oh, I remember this absolutely extraordinary uh, Sidney Poitier film from 1965, A Patch of Blue. Oh, it's such a good film. Shelley Winters won an Oscar for this. Shelley Winters won an Oscar for playing the, yeah, she plays the mom of this young blind she's girl. Great. She's like this, she's like this hooker mom who, who 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 blinded her daughter when she was like five, 13, 14 years later. It's set in Los Angeles, 13, 14 years later, you have this young blind woman who's more or less uh, um, uh, uh, trapped up in her house, uh, and this young black man who comes into her life and decides to take her out into the world. Uh, Sidney Poitier. Uh, Sidney made a few of these films uh, over that period from the middle 50s, Little of the Field, and, and one or two more before he sort of slipped off into the, uh, the films that he's more well known for, the sort of late 60s film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and, uh, and then the, In the Heat of the Night, and uh, they call me Mr. Tibbs, and all that kind of stuff. So, so this was a period when Sidney was uh, more or less, well, not, I was about to say the lone uh, black actor, uh, but that's not true. Ozzie Davis was around, Harry Belafonte was around. But Sidney was occupying this very particular space where he would play these characters in these movies, and the issue of his race was not really very prominent in the storyline. The fact that Sidney is this black man wandering around L.A. with this young, blind, white girl uh, and engaging with her, uh, her, her prostitute mom, played by Shelley Winters, that doesn't really come up in the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's True. Not, that's not the issue of the movie. The issue is is, is how this girl is gonna is gonna lead her life, uh, and it's really really lovely. Special features include a commentary by Guy Green, the director Guy Green, and the Guy Green's such a good director, such a wonderful director, uh, and, and a featurette, a Cinderella named Elizabeth, which is all about the little girl from the Warner Brothers killer, a patch of blue. Wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, uh, Elizabeth Hartman is who played the young woman. Um, let me do a couple of DVDs here real quickly just to get these out of the way here. Um, so some of you may not realize that Ron Howard, known primarily as a director of, of, a, of a Han Solo movie now, apparently. <laughs> um, that's, so, that's weird, right? Uh, uh, Ron Howard once played Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, he did. Uh, and kind of a weird Huckleberry Finn. Like, I, could, I, would, I would cast Ron Howard 
is Tom Sawyer, mm-hmm. but not, not Huck, Huck Finn. Finn. Yeah. Not Huck Finn. Doesn't have the edge. No. Uh, Hope he doesn't have the edge. Uh, for sure. But well, anyway. Ron is a really good actor. Just saw him in The Shootist yesterday. It's running on. Oh, he's great Ron was really good in The Shootist. He's really good you know? in The Shootist. Yeah. Terrific. Um, opposite John Wayne. Yeah. Crazy, right? That There's your connection right there. Right there. Ron Howard. I mean, Ron Howard's dad was, you know, a, a legend Rance. too. But, but, Rance, yeah. Um, you know, but, but Ron Howard, the guy who directed Solo, once acted opposite a man mm. who was directed by John Ford yeah. in 1939. Yeah. Yeah. We still have roots. Yeah. We still have They're a there. few degrees of separation to yeah. all that. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a 1977 uh, television production. I believe it was television. Might not have been. Uh, anyway, it's 1975. Uh, very short. 77 minutes long. Um, you know who plays Tom Sawyer in this? This yeah. is what's hysterical. Donnie Most. <laughs> Donnie Most is brilliant. He, he, wait a minute. So this is 77. So I mean, him and Donnie had, had worked in uh, on Happy Days already. Yeah. So Ron, Ron got Donnie the job playing. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Way right. to go. Way to go. Way uh, to go. Uh, how, how silly is that? So anyway. Um, That's a yeah. buddy right there. Yeah, it is. So anyway, this is uh, this was, I, I'm almost 99% I, <clears throat> certain I saw this on television. But uh, so it's a TV movie, and it certainly feels like a TV movie. Rance Howard is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually, plays Huck Finn's dad. So you know he's 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 pulling in all the uh, all all the favors. And meanwhile, as this is 1977, guess who plays Jim? Mm, who's who, who's who is who got it? No. no. Who's who's been on television on a weekly basis like everybody else that you're going to recognize? Also on ABC in 1970s, what black actor? Huggy Bear. Oh, Antonio Fargus, who is in a film (laughs) that I wrote that came out in 2008. He plays Floppy. That's right. He plays in, in that movie I wrote, Bad Guys. One degree of separation. There it folks. is. There it is. One degree of separation. So, uh, look, there's a picture. Look, there, there he is, right there. How and he looks the same in '77 as, as he did he in 2008. Now. And I saw as him about now. three weeks ago, and he looks exactly the same. Sure does. He's the Dick Clark of the. Uh, he really uh, is. So anyway, there's and, and Clint Howard, of course, shows up in this. Uh, of too. course he does. Look, I mean, it is and, his mom in there. His yes. mom was in. Okay, yes, she's yeah. in it too. She's in it too. So pretty much uh, everybody, he just pulls in all the favors. Is it any good? No, not really. <laughs> who not, cares? But who cares? It's just it's a total bunch of you know ABC television kitsch from 1977. Oh, Antonio Fargus. Uh, this this is a thousand and one nights, the story of Aladdin and uh, eight magical tales, which uh, Mill Creek uh, got out in a hurry because the live action Aladdin is now in theaters and pretty much played out. But uh, anyway, they they went and pulled together a whole bunch of different movies that were just that just been made over the years that all have some kind of Aladdin connection. Uh, there's a thousand and one nights, which was you know an, an, an old movie with Cornell uh, Wilde and Phil Silvers of all people. Um, it I mean it's you know it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, a thousand and one Arabian Nights with Jim Backus and Dwayne Hickman. Uh, the Magic Carpet with Lucille Ball. Um, Arabian Nights miniseries, which had Jason Scott Lee and John Leguizamo. Uh, that was, I think, the late 90s. And uh, lastly, Aladdin the Musical with Barry Bostwick and Richard Kiley. All of this stuff is kitsch. Mm. Um, but it shows you how much you can squeeze out of a very, very simple and mythical uh, tale. And you can squeeze quite a lot. Anyway, um, 
it, you know, there are a few cartoons on here as well, and uh, including Popeye Meets Aladdin and His Wonderful Lamp, which is probably the best thing on here. But regardless, if you got a yen for Aladdin, if the movie's got your juices flowing and it's not enough, and you got a kid who wants to see more Aladdin like I do, knock yourselves out. Mm. You're, you're, you're How did Aladdin do? Did it do okay? You know, I haven't looked. Yeah. I haven't really paid attention. I'm still, I, I, all I'm looking at is to see Avengers as it inches closer and closer and closer to uh, Avatar. It's, and, now and, about, and, it's now about $42 million away. And they're, they're putting out, they're going to release an Avenger with another, what, 10 or 15 minutes worth of? So, uh, yeah, they're re releasing it uh, this weekend, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many more screens they're putting it in. I assume they're going to they're gonna snatch at least 1,000 new screens because, uh, you know, they, I mean, Disney is a predator that way. Oh, right? yeah. They, they saw very quickly. Uh, now that they own Fox, that uh, Dark Phoenix is tanking, those screens need to be available for Lion King. Yeah. So Disney is thinking, okay, let's just cut our losses with Dark Phoenix, throw Avengers Endgame back in there, which will probably outperform Dark Phoenix even at this late date. It'll oh, yeah. get more people in there. And we'll hold those screens for uh, Lion King, and then no other studio is going to be able to grab them. Plus, Men in Black is, International is tanking, tanking yeah. so they can grab those screens, too. So Disney's just holding on to screens and yeah. keeping exhibitors happy is what's going on. And yeah. exhibitors are happy to get Endgame back in there. you kidding me? Particularly, you know, they, they do they, something sort of tricky, like, you know, yeah. you, you put 10 minutes and in And that's what they're like doing. There's going to be a deleted yeah. scene and some they're, they're like and, and uh, some other stuff at the end. So they just, you know, it's, it, they, they, just, they're just slapping some Easter eggs on there. Yeah. Uh, a couple of these real quick. Yeah. Uh, the Prisoner of Second Avenue is a film that I just absolutely love. Um, uh, uh, Melvin Frank directed uh, the Neil Simon play. The film more or less plays exactly like the play because uh, we're mostly in that high-rise apartment in Manhattan uh, uh, with Jack Lemmon and Anne Bancroft just going uh, completely bananas. It's, it's just a story uh, about a guy who loses his job, an executive, a mid-level executive who loses his job, has a bit of a nervous breakdown. Uh, the film, uh, the play, the film, the story uh, is, is set contemporary to the, uh, to the time, 1975. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like a big deal. Um, and it's just this funny, funny, funny play about this husband and wife uh, and what they go through as he's going through a sort of middle-age, uh, middle uh, midlife crisis. She gets a job. She loses her job. You have the neighbors and all that kind of stuff. Again, this isn't the kind of movie that you, that you see a lot anymore, that gets made anymore. Gene Sachs in the movie. Uh, uh, you have the wonderful Ed Peck in the movie. Uh, it's just the funniest thing you ever did see. M. Emmett Walsh and F. Murray Abraham in this movie uh, I had forgotten about. So it's really, really a neat uh, movie. Mel um, Frank's adaptation of uh, Neil Simon's The Prisoner of Second Avenue. And Bancroft then... Um, directs a wonderful movie called Fatso uh, in 1980. So Anne Bancroft plays the wife in The Prison of Second Avenue. A couple of years later, uh, one of her early directing uh, efforts, uh, she's working with Dom DeLuise, 1980, directing a wonderful movie, this really poignant and sweet movie. Love this movie. Called Fatso. Love this movie. Dom DeLuise, of course, a big a big guy uh, all, all his entire life. Oh, yeah. Uh, across the street. Good friend of Burt Reynolds. Him and Burt made some wonderful and, movies and together. And if you, if you ever saw Dom DeLuise, and I, you know, my, my wife, Wife went to school with one of the Deloise kids. I know uh, other people who. I mean, I Peter I know people. Deloise who, yeah, from, Peter's. Yeah. He's been been all over the place. So uh, you know, everyone in L.A. has some connection to Dom Deloise somehow. A friend of mine made a movie. I went to the you know it was a little independent thing. Went to the premiere. Dom Deloise was there. Dom Dom was everywhere uh, at, at some point. You couldn't escape him. And if you in in Dom was not just overweight. Dom was enormous yeah uh, you, you have to understand just how obese he was for most of his life 
And the thing was, you know, you when you saw him struggling to to walk and all that, it was really, really tragic. Yeah, yeah. And yet he had no trouble asking us to laugh at his disability yeah. on screen. That's yeah. and that's why this movie is so poignant. It's sweet. The, the 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 very the very uh, poster of the film, him yeah. with that one tear in his eye, and it's a very is a beautiful yeah. movie. He has his friend, his friend passes away, and the whole movie is about this guy who goes on this uh, bender to try to lose weight. Yeah, uh, which of course is a thing that he struggled with his he whole did, entire his whole life. life. Uh, and, and wonderful work by Anne Bancroft as a director. Fantastic, beautifully yep. beautifully made yep. film. Yep, you got one. Yeah, I got a few. Uh, older ones here. So here, here's here's a blast from the past. 1993, Slaughter of the Innocents with Scott Glenn. So James Glickenhaus, who's basically uh, who wrote and directed this, and is you know B movie guy. He 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 plied his trade at the time, doing uh, just doing pretty much straight to video kind of stuff. Really, real solid B movie guy though. Mm. Um, this is uh, obviously something that comes in the wake of Silence of the Lambs. And in the same mixes in the in the moment with seven, and mm-hmm. you know when serial killer movies were kind of becoming a thing again, thanks to Silence of the Lambs, and uh, so you got uh, Scott Glenn, basically who who was in Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. incidentally, uh, playing an FBI agent who has to go one on one with a uh, uh, a serial killer who uh, preys on children, and it winds up getting personal at a certain point, as it you know, which which echoes what what happens in seven as well with uh, Brad Pitt. And um, you know it 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 doesn't it doesn't go anywhere new, but it if for what it is, which is a B movie knockoff, it's it's definitely top flight, and most of that has to do with the fact that Glickenhaus totally knows what he's doing, and Scott Glenn is a hell of an actor. He's a hell of a great actor. So uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. Um, this is from uh, Synapse Films. Comes on Blu-ray. And it has uh, all the old archival uh, EPK stuff on it, the interviews with Glickenhaus and, uh, and Scott Glenn. And there's even a few new featurettes that they went and put together with this. And Glickenhaus does a really, really cool audio commentary. He's very much in the John Badham school uh, of, yeah. uh, you know what, it's a job, folks. Yeah, yeah, journeyman director, guys. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and then we got a couple from the early 2000s. Uh, Winter Passing just kind of evaporated. That went uh, completely off the, off the grid. This is from MVD. It's on Blu-ray. And uh, this was one of those Yari Film Group movies before Yari Film Group uh, evaporated. This is from uh, director Adam Rapp. And it's a, it's a really – it's a very eccentric story. Zoe Deschanel is this girl who's sort of, for, for all kinds of reasons I can't get into, uh, trying to sort of uh, reconnect with her dysfunctional family. Uh, Ed Harris plays her, her dad. Her mom is passed. Um, the, uh, her, her dad is, is, a, is a famous figure for a certain reason. The love letters between the parents are being, being sought for sale. Uh, and uh, essentially it's just a weird collection of characters. Will Ferrell in a totally uh, unusual part where he's he's being eccentric but not funny eccentric, like scary eccentric. Um, Amelia Warner is also very, very good. Zoe Deschanel, obviously a much younger performance for her, and she's very, very solid. Adam Rapp wrote and directed it. Haven't seen much from him lately, but mm. this was back in the 90s when you could do a cool, funky indie like this. Yeah. And... Um, and speaking of, of funky indies, uh, man, this is a, this is one that I could totally forgotten existed. Uh, Beer League from this must have been ninety three. Is this uh, no or not ninety like two two no two thousand six? Yeah, two thousand six. The other was ninety three, two thousand six. So Artie Lang and Ralph Macchio made a movie together. Mm. 
How weird is that? <laughs> so Artie Lang, who is a you know a pretty raw comic, uh, goes out there and talks about all of his uh, his obesity and his coke use yeah, and yeah, you know yeah. his his heroin addiction and every every I mean he lets his vices hang out yeah, he really does yeah and I guess that's how he copes um, but he's not an easy guy to wrap yourself around you know Artie Lang is not easily likable in movies and he's not easily likable here he's a, he's a bum he's a vagrant uh, lives with his mom played by Laurie Metcalf. Uh, he's got no job, and uh, he uh, he's pretty much the worst human being in the world. And uh, now you've got one of these um, these situations where uh, the bar, the, his local bar, is going to get kicked out of its beer league unless they defeat the champions. And the only way to do that is to make sure that obviously you're good enough, but you also have to, well, you know. It's it's the bad news bears with a with a much less likable bunch of people. Um, it, I guess it's it wants to be a Caddyshack, not really a Caddyshack for for you know uh, beer league baseball, but that's what it's aspiring to do. Ralph Macchio's kind of wasted in this thing, but the one thing that is enjoyable is Seymour Cassell, who just somehow always shows up and uh, and nails it. Uh, a few other cameos in here from uh, you know that aren't really worth mentioning, but uh, anyway, it's beer league with Artie Lang and Ralph Macchio, and boy, was that a weird <laughs> thing to see show up on the grid. Dude, it's the 25th anniversary of Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump. I don't even want to know that. Oh, it's just, just I, don't it, know I mean, that's 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 wonderful, but it's horrible, but it's wonderful. Uh, anyway, newly remastered the Blu-ray, uh, uh, three hours of special features, Robert Zemeckis' film, uh, uh, Winston Groom's novel, Eric Roth's screenplay. Um, Forrest Gump yeah. is as old. 1994. Yeah. Forrest Gump is as old to us now as Easy Rider was when Forrest Gump came, came out. out. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's wrong, a, man. Know, it's, yeah, yeah, 50. It's wrong. Tom, Tom Hanks with a chin. Uh, fantastic film, of course. One flicks good. I always thought it was funny that Sally Field was only about three or four <laughs> years older than Tom Hanks playing <laughs> right. his mother in this movie. Yeah, uh, and it did, you know, but, you know, yeah. but see, that's also the fun thing in The Graduate. Too, yeah, yeah, is that Anne Bancroft, Anne Bancroft again is not that much older than and, uh, uh, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman. You know, so the, yeah. those guys are getting away with it. Uh, the Bostonians, one of the most oh, wonderful James Ivory films. I love yeah. that it's set in the South. I think it's set in Mississippi, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, uh, Christopher Reeves uh, and this absolutely beautiful story about this uh, young woman who's a bit of a suffragette and these two men who vie for her yeah. affections. Uh, uh, and, you know, one of them. Classic uh, Henry James classic, stuff. Classic Henry James stuff. A beautiful, beautiful movie. N not often remembered when we talk about the canon of James Ivory. We talk about the remains of the day and, 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 and some of the wonderful James Ivory films. We sometimes forget about this film, which, of course, um, male lead, the wonderful Christopher Reeves uh, in this film. Um, which, you know, in uh, 1984, Christopher, Christopher had been uh, running around in that Superman suit for a while. Uh, and he and it was a wonderful thing to see him uh, in this wonderful uh, movie, a rare uh, movie um, from James Ivory there. Uh, how to stuff a wild bikini, 1965, dude. Growing so much up, fun. growing up in the in the you know late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Uh, I, I, every time this came on television, I would sit there and watch it as if I had never seen it before. Uh, it's just nuts. Uh, a William Asher film. William directed a whole bunch of those uh, wacky beach blanket bingo type yeah. movies back there with Funicello and. Uh, but they're all fun. They're all a lot of fun. Love this. How to stuff a wild bikini. Uh, and you got one more over there. Yeah, I got a few. Uh, I got a few uh, uh, creepy things, uh, creepy movies. Let me let me knock these off. So, um, creepy and horror things. This is a. <laughs> this is so weird. Shout Factory and Scream Factory. They they find <laughs> they this. really do. They really do dig up the best cult stuff. 
This is the new collector's edition of Night of the Creeps uh, from 1986, which uh, which came first, Night of the Creeps or Creep Show? Do we remember? Uh, Creep Show came first. Creep Show must have come first. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because Creep Show would have been in the 70s. Yeah, Creep Creep Show, I think, it was about 82, 83, maybe. Let me look I'm that up. That, I'm thinking of Creep Show because Creep Show is a, you know a Stephen King movie. Yeah, yeah, hold on. Let me let, let hey, hang on, hang on. We're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna uh, I should have checked this out before the show. That's, but, you know, yeah, we're not that, that but, professional. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Creep Show was mm. uh, 1982. 82. Okay. 82. Yeah. So Night of the Creeps comes out on the, on the heels of Creep Show, and of course the way that they write the graphics for Creeps is meant to sort yeah, of evoke yeah. Creep Show. Um, it, it definitely means to be to reference it. But Night of the Creeps is fun all on its own. It's a completely wacky, bonkers uh, plot written and directed by Fred Decker, who's another one of those those B movie guys who was just killing it in the eighties. And um, this was an early TriStar uh, production too. So basically. The alien aliens are doing something messed up in 1950s, and uh, their their messed up stuff winds up infecting this um, this college student. And then in the present day, which is now the 80s, once we get to the 80s, we flash forward to the 80s, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some fraternity guys who find his frozen body, the infected frozen body of this alien disease infected. Mm guy and they they thaw it out and suddenly there you basically have a like the the entire campus is like zombie central <laughs> i love that's it that's it the whole thing it, it's just it's the most roundabout way of justifying a zombie outbreak it really is it's ridiculous <laughs> the, the the plot is so so completely bananas it's it's hysterical and the effects are cheesy and the acting is really bad and it's just brilliant it's absolutely wonderful um, all new interviews with people who were in it. Uh, there's a, uh, a new episode of Horror's Hallowed Grounds on this. There's a Fred Decker commentary, which is pretty fun. Um, commentary with the cast, which is probably a, a little bit less fun. They kind of you know ramble a little bit, but it's okay. Deleted scenes, featurettes, more than you'd ever want for a movie of this type. Mm. We also have Leprechaun Returns. And let me tell you, you don't want Leprechaun returning. The original <laughs> Leprechaun is a horrible film. <gasps> And for some reason, it was successful enough that they went and uh, and had. They to... made a few sequels of those movies. Yeah, well, this is from last year. I know. I don't know. Wh- I don't know why. Thirty we... years now. I don't know why we needed a Leprechaun sequel last year, but there we got it. Uh, so uh, naturally, he wants his pot of gold. Except this time, it's underneath the sorority. It writes itself. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. Um. Anyway, it's it's just it's it's. It's a gore movie that isn't really scary, and it, the plot is ridiculous. Uh, here's a here's a really fascinating blast from the past. 1987, John Schlesinger directed The Believers. Uh, it's not a very John Schlesinger movie. Uh, it's basically just a straightforward, creepy thriller, uh, kind of one of those supernatural thrillers that that deals with occultism and and cults and you know witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Martin Sheen is the guy who is, you know, caught in the middle of it along with Helen Shaver. Uh, it's a little gory. It's a little nasty. There's a there's a scene where, you know, like a boil bursts open and spiders crawl out. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in a movie. Um, uh, very unusual thing for Schlesinger to do. It's like, why would why would John why would the guy who did Midnight Cowboy yeah. 
and Cold Comfort Farm make this movie, I guess, because it was a payday. Yeah, mortgage payment. Uh, anyway, it has kind of a following, um, perhaps mainly because it was written, uh, it was based on the Nicholas Condi novel, The Religion, which has it has a certain following as well. Uh, and it was written, the screenplay adaptation was written by Mark Frost, who, of course, co-created Twin Peaks with uh, David Lynch. So, I mean, there is a pedigree here, and Martin Sheen is very, very good in it, but uh, it, is a, it is definitely a weird one from the 80s. It is a very strange collection of talent in a movie you would not normally expect. Mm. That's on Blu-ray from uh, Olive, and uh, pretty good transfer, pretty decent transfer. And then the last one here is Volume 2 of the American Horror Project from Arrow, which uh, is not as strong as Volume 1, but it does, uh, it does have three interesting films that uh, horror fans, fans, horror historians will probably appreciate. Dream No Evil, uh, Dark August, and The Child, all of which are significant for all kinds of reasons, but really specifically to horror fans. Um, they're all 2K restorations. They're all done really well. They all come with really, really great extras, especially Dream No Evil. Uh, which has uh, Hollywood After Dark, the early films of John Hayes, which is quite, quite interesting, and uh, an audio commentary with Kat Ellinger and Sam, uh, Sam Dayen. Um, but otherwise, uh, this is strictly for people who are really, really aficionados of these films and, and the era in which they were birthed. Dream, uh, Dream No Evil, Dark August, and The Child. Mm, good, good stuff. Uh, Carol Reed. Carol Reed, of course, the third man, Carol Reed. And, and Oliver. And Oliver. And we sort yeah. of redefined the thriller. Uh, a little bit later, um, he, he, he made this wonderful little thriller. Uh, called The Running Man, uh, nothing to do with that thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger, no, 1963. Lawrence Harvey, Lee Remick, Alan Bates in this film. Basically, it's about a guy who fakes his death and moves to Spain, brings his wife there, and then you know they intend to live out their life. He has a, a grudge against against the company, and then the insurance investigator, played by Alan Bates, shows up. It's a, an intense, wicked little film, widescreen and in color, so the exact opposite of what Carol Reed had been doing previously. Special uh, this special this special edition uh, includes all kinds of fantastic. Um, uh, restoration stuff, high definition, uh, yeah, yeah, um, um, uh, high definition restoration, isolated music scores, really, really neat stuff. So this is a very, very good Carol Reed film. Um, uh, Lawrence Harvey, Lee Remick from 1963. Check it out if you get a chance. Midnight Lights from 1960, Doris Day film. Lost Doris not too long ago. Yeah, uh, if I'm not, if I recall weeks ago, a like couple of weeks, weeks ago. ago. Uh, this is uh, an underrated Doris Day film. Basically, it's one of those gaslighting films. Uh, an American goes to London. She's recently married. Uh, she feels like she's being stalked. She goes to the authorities. Her husband, nobody believes her. She thinks she's going crazy. It's an intense, well-done little film uh, uh, with Rex Harrison and John Gavin and Myrna Loy and Roddy McDowell. Uh, and Natasha Perry. And this is just, you know, this is it's just an underrated Doris Day film. You know, she was doing a lot of singing in movies back in back then. But this, I think, is uh, one of the better ones we didn't get a chance to talk about recently when she passed. So this is Midnight Lace. Uh, special features include a commentary uh, by the film by film historian Kat Ellinger and the theatrical trailer. Uh, and I have this film called Double Face. Ricardo Frida film with Klaus Kinski. This is just this horribly homophobic film about this millionaire <laughs> whose lesbian wife sets him up <laughs> for a murder. It's just, an, it's just an incredibly homophobic Italian film, and don't watch it. Um, uh, it's, uh, 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 Mind Warp, um, uh, uh, this is a double build, sci-fi double feature uh, uh, here. Mind Warp and Brain Scan. Which are actually pretty neat films. Mind Warp from 1992, Brain Scan from 1994. The neat thing about Brain Scan is Edward Furlong and Frank Langella, and Edward Furlong was subtle just coming off of those uh, uh, that Terminator film, that T2 yeah, film yeah. Uh, back then. So, uh, so he was having a little 
uh, a little moment uh, in his life. And uh, you know, yeah, Frank Langella, love me some Frank Langella, really can't go wrong with him. Mind Warp from 1992, Bruce Campbell in the film. Love me some Bruce Campbell, of course, uh, Evil Dead and all those all of those movies. And, you know, back in the day, Bruce was still looking pretty good going around movies, knocking people out. It was a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic film. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's set in this sort of VR world where people can kill each other by playing these games. Uh, neat stuff from uh, 1972. Mind Warp and Brain Scan. I uh, got a couple of, uh, got a few, just a few here to, to wrap things out. Uh, I'll save the best for last. The Big White is a movie I totally had totally forgotten about. This is so this is so unusual. Uh, this is from two thousand and five. This is a Robin Williams movie where oh, you remember this? Yes, he's this guy in Alaska, and he tries to pull this insurance scam, which involves his brother, played by Woody Harrelson. And I won't tell you exactly what the scam is because it's so far fetched, and yet at the same time, it feels a little Fargo like. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a the, where this goes, and by, maybe that has, it's because of all the snow, but. Um, Giovanni Rabisi. It's yeah, it's really it, it, Giovanni Rabisi, Holly Hunter, um, Tim, Blake. T- Tim Blake Nelson, Allison Loman. It's a good cast, a really good cast. Directed by Mark Malou, uh, my, uh, yeah, Malou. Uh, really, a, it's such an unusual movie. I and I remember this coming out, and it came and went. I think because people didn't quite know what to make of it. But boy, uh, it you know what? Uh, my Lod, I guess, is the director's name. My Lod, mm-hmm. Milo, mm-hmm. My Lod. Anyway, yeah. don't know how to pronounce that name. But um, yeah, the it, it really is an unusual movie. It has a very strange tone. You're not you're not quite sure when you're supposed to laugh and when not. So it does share that with Fargo. Uh, but it's a great cast, and it's um, you know in the in the wake of uh, Robin Williams passing, it might be worth rediscovering because yeah. it's a very very solid performance. Um, around about the time that Christopher Nolan made The Prestige, there was another movie out that was uh, basically the same plot, but better, mm. uh, believe it or not. The mm. Prestige did play some gimmicks that, yeah. uh, that I thought were pretty obvious. But Neil Berger's The Illusionist got overshadowed, and it shouldn't have been. This also stars Jessica Biel and Paul Giamatti, and it's out on Blu-ray now from MVD. Um, and you really should check it out. It's, it's, it, you know, it's the same general idea, uh, but turn it goes, of the century mu- uh, magicians. Turn of the century magicians, and you know, is it or is it not magic? And you know what you're what you are expected to use your your magic for, mm-hmm. and how. Anyway, and, and, and in a thriller, uh, a thriller environment, a thriller plot. Um, but uh, you know, Paul Giamatti uh, as the inspector who's yeah. investigating the crime, very kind of, uh, uh, I, I, I guess, uh, an Agatha Christie type investigator in many respects. Um, it really, it's 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 a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating piece, and it really didn't get enough credit at the time. And uh, I hope more people rediscover it now. Definitely worth checking out. Um, and then lastly, got a couple of Criterion's and a Disney. Nah. I'll save the Disney for last. The two Criterion's are both fantastic. Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Oh my from God! John Cameron Mitchell gets the Criterion treatment, the director approved treatment. And what a great movie. This movie was made for next to no money in 2001. John Cameron Mitchell got uh, the uh, the New Generation Award from our uh, L.A. film critics. Ray gave a wonderful speech yeah, presenting that Ray award. Green, yeah. We all sat at the same table. Um, Back in a, 2001. 2001. Yeah. Such a great guy, John Cameron Mitchell. So Such a, such a sweet man. Uh, and, of course, Hedwig and the Angry Inch was a, was a, a big underground stage thing, which Cameron and, uh, John Cameron Mitchell wanted to do because it tied it in with um, a lot of Fassbinder mm-hmm. themes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it really is. It's a very Fassbindery movie. Uh, 
you know, Steve, he and Stephen Trask both kind of found common ground on that. And Stephen Trask, who, of course, wrote the music and lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great movie. It's just a great movie. Tough to watch, you know, because it's got a whole transsexualism theme yeah. to it that is very, very difficult to, to, to deal with in many respects, what the character goes through. But such a such an imaginative movie made for almost no money, and they do such a great job. Uh, heaps of extras here. I won't even get into it. It's just tons of extras. And uh, the, the best is a uh, new conversation that they have with uh, the cast and crew where they just are clearly so awestruck and grateful to have been part of it. Um, it's beautiful. Beautiful movie. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And then the other one is the brand new, this was released in theaters as well, the brand new sparkling, impeccable looking 422-minute War and Peace, mm. Sergei Bondarchuk's 1966 epic uh, which has been out twice previously on uh, on blue on DVD. It, it you should just discard those because this Blu-ray absolutely blows them out of the water. They restored the film. They did everything right. I've seen this in the theater. I've it's never, an eight hour. It's an eight hour. It's, it's an eight, an eight hour. hour. I saw it with a with a lunch and a dinner break. <laughs> yeah, at the yeah, at the Egyptian yeah. theater in Hollywood. And I'll tell you, I've never seen this movie look this beautiful. It is absolutely spectacular. New interviews with the cinematographer. And with uh, Bondarchuk's son, Fedor Bondarchuk. Um, there are two documentaries in here, both from the 60s. There's a television show from 67 about uh, the actor Ludmila Saval- Savalieva. Uh, and there's a, uh, I mean, just a whole bunch of other stuff. It's, it's great. Uh, the film itself is a stunning epic. It's a perfect adaptation. It's a little groovy in places, as you would expect from the 60s. Mm. But all the extras are there. Well, this yeah. is why the Soviet Union went bankrupt. Yeah, they 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 made this movie. This was a this was made for a hundred million dollars in yeah. 1966. Yeah, it yeah. would be like five hundred million dollars today. They've got fat, like ten thousand people. They 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 restage entire entire battle scenes. It's an, it's extraordinary. <laughs> it's it's a it's yeah. a really amazing. Uh, and then we're going out with this. Disney has re-released Cinderella in an anniversary Blu-ray edition. The difference primarily is it looks better than the previous Blu-ray, and it has the movie's anywhere code. So Cinderella, let me just point this out. Cinderella is one of those movies. I've got all the I've got all the princess movies that yeah. I can on movies anywhere, yeah. and on Vudu. So that when my daughter says I want to watch, I just throw it up. I don't have to get a disc. Mm-hmm. Cinderella, I've been having to get the damn disc. Mm-hmm. Got to get the damn disc for Cinderella. I'm tired of getting the disc. Movies anywhere. Thank you. Now I get Cinderella movies anywhere. Boom. Don't have to get the damn disc anymore. But if I need it, I got it. Yeah. So got the Blu-ray, uh, and uh, this is so welcome. This is uh, this, of course, is, they, they brag it's part of the National Film Registry. Yes, yes. I got some things yeah, to say about yeah, that soon yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, lots of other stuff on here. You can watch the original theatrical version, or you can watch the uh, the the uh, in Walt, in Walt's words the envisioning of Cinderella version of it, which is quite interesting. Uh, it's it's an it's an alternate way of watching that really uh, mainly for for adults to, to make it more interesting. It's about perspective. Yes. Yeah. There's more inter- there's more uh, featurette stuff on here. There's uh, just a, it's really it's wonderful. Look, what, do I have to talk to you? Cin- <laughs> Cinderella, Cinderella. It's it's all about the mice, man. The yeah. mice are what make this movie. Anyway, mm-hmm. it is a terrific film. Still one of the most successful films of all time. With that, I think we are done this week. Mm. I am off to film week now. Yes. To talk about Toy Story 4. Yes. You know what, folks? It's great. It's really good.